I am Dorothy Thompson, and I have been asked to introduce Sands of Sorrow because I have recently returned from visiting the scenes of the picture you are about to see. Of course, the impression left on my mind by these wretched casualties of political change is much more distressing than the film. For no film can convey the icy winds from Mount Hermon as they blow upon crazy, flawless tents in Syria, or the rains that turn dwellings into mud holes in the rainy season in Lebanon, nor the defeated feeling even of those who are trying to help. But this film tells part of a story that until now has hardly been told at all outside the Arab world. Suffering people, the Palestine Arab refugees, are struggling for survival. Three quarters of a million displaced human beings are dependent upon charity for their very existence. This is one of dozens of camps in which these refugees huddle in squalor. All are overcrowded, jammed with men, women, and children who have no place to go. No place except the desert. No home other than a tent or cave no food other than that which is donated to them. In these camps of misery live the scores of thousands whose native land was for centuries Palestine. Then the tragedy of war descended on that holy land and made them wanderers. Today they have no alternative but to camp in the sands which surround their former country and wait. The seemingly endless wait for humanitarian assistance which the fortunate peoples of the world have always given generously to those less fortunate in times of human disaster. Children and older men and women are the chief sufferers. Distribution time is the only bright ray in their routine existence. The contents of one truck will not help many, that's true, just emergencies on the neediest cases. This is an open-air distribution conducted by the Egyptian army, which now controls and administers the territory south of Palestine, known as the Gaza Strip. In this narrow area of sand along the Mediterranean, there are 250,000 refugees herded into a space only 22 miles long and five miles wide. Like other Arab countries, Egypt is hard pressed to accommodate this great mass of newcomers. The country grows barely enough food for her own population of 20 million. There are no dwellings available in her overcrowded cities to house these former citizens of Palestine. Despite the fact that Egypt has already contributed more than $8 million as her share to their relief, this money has enabled only temporary alleviation of their distress. It has been spent on clothes, blankets, food, and on the administration of a stricken area 
from which there is no economic return. The time for distribution depends on the arrival of fresh supplies, never a certainty in this period of Near East turmoil. Such supplies are never ample enough to go around, and the refugees know their turn may not come for a long while. Whatever they draw, they take back to their families. A blanket, soap, a little rice, the means to keep warm, wash and ward off disease, to keep alive until the time for the next distribution. One can't blame them for impatience, but desperation breeds impatience. Long months of waiting has driven their morale to its lowest ebb. There is opportunity for little except to live from day to day in the hope that soon, somewhere, the way will open for permanent resettlement and lasting security. Their traditional Arab pride rebels against the acceptance of handouts, against living on a dole at the mercy of someone else's generosity. They would prefer to work and earn their living as they have done in happier years before and as their families did before them for centuries. But there is no work in a desert refugee camp and no opportunity for self-support. Food, enough food is their ever-present problem. The United Nations sends truckloads of flour and basic food essentials, but what they send is not enough, so great is the need. The town of Gaza is now the railhead for supplies forwarded from Egypt. As soon as supplies are unloaded from ships and trains, trucks take them to warehouses located in key refugee relief centers to await careful allocation. In the two years before the United Nations solely assumed the task of caring for these displaced people, relief distribution was organized and administered by such world-famed organizations as the International Red Cross and the American Friends Service Committee, working in cooperation with various United Nations branches such as UNICEF, UNESCO, and others. The fact that 750,000 of these Arab refugees are alive today is due in great part to their early awareness of the extent of this tragedy and their great efforts to cope with the problem. Because of a high birth rate, the number of mouths to be fed increases by more than 100 daily. Registration cards listing all family statistics are carefully checked. With food short, duplication must be avoided. Many refugees, like the dignified man in the black jacket, are college-educated graduates of American and Arab universities in Cairo and Beirut. This man is a mudir, once in better days the mayor of his town. Impartiality is the absolute rule. His issue of flour, rice, margarine, and beans is no larger than that for the humblest refugee. He gets no meat, for there is none. Daily rations total only 1,400 calories per person. 300 less than is needed to sustain life over a long period. UN relief workers know that the arrival of fresh milk powder supplied by UNICEF may mean the difference between life and death to the refugees, especially the children. It is milk that has helped prevent the death rate of a few months ago, an average of 120 deaths a night from going even higher. The powder comes packed in sterilized barrels and must be transported thousands of miles from the United States and Great Britain to points which UN officials select as areas of greatest need. Once in the mixing shed, the milk powder must be stirred until it is dissolved in boiled, disease-free water. 
even water is a problem. In many camps, there is but one well to fill the needs of 10,000 people. Lacking other dietary requirements for healthy bodies, the children need far more milk than it is now possible to give them. Malnutrition has sapped their strength for too long. Their faces reflect the care and worry which they see reflected in the faces of the older refugees. They are old beyond their years. Flies must be kept away from the milk. In this part of the world, flies spread deadly diseases, start epidemics, which might spread from camp to camp in a matter of hours. In every camp, the children wait as eagerly for their milk ration as American children do for ice cream. And they have first call. Many of these children are too young to recall ever having had enough to eat. The days when their parents owned enough cows and goats to provide them with all the fresh milk they could drink. Milk is their mainstay. Just as a pot of hot broth is a luxury to the older folks, in this land where a hot meal is a rarity owing to the almost complete lack of firewood. Even the simple tasks of housekeeping, such as mending, must be done in the open. An estimated 20% of the refugees are Christian Arabs. This kind Lebanese priest, Father Shukri Sarur, every night crowds some 275 of the sickest and neediest into his ancient monastery in Gaza. In the cells, the corridors, the cellars, so they at least will sleep safely under the protection of a roof. Forty years a priest in Jerusalem, he did not desert his people in their hour of distress. He borrowed seeds for them to plant and raise their own vegetables. The unyielding desert sand inside his monastery walls slowly became gardens supplying greens at least for the children. For their clothes, for spiritual consolation, for all that has enabled them to survive these dreary months, they have had to turn to Father Surur, whose name has become a symbol of hope to Christian and Muslim refugees alike. For these youngsters, Father Sarur's words are a message of comfort, a promise that tomorrow will not be as bleak as today and yesterday. All through the barren Palestinian hills along the road leading to Arab Jerusalem and Bethlehem, one finds isolated refugee groups. Some of them hide deep in olive groves, which date back to biblical days. The population of the little town of Bethlehem has been swollen by 43,000 refugees who formerly lived in Jaffa, Haifa, and other cities to the north. The Church of the Nativity is but a short distance from two large refugee camps whose occupants are as poverty-stricken and helpless as those in desert camps. Many are families whose pride compels them to seek their own salvation rather than turn to relief authorities for the assistance which all so badly need. With no work available, they have a heavy drain on the city's inhabitants and its economy. This is the Church of All Nations, not far from it, is an outstanding example that the spirit of charity still lives. This building is the Dar el Tifl Orphanage for homeless Arab refugee children. For 300 years it had been the ancestral home of Miss Hind Husini, an Arab lady whose name is as renowned in the Near East as that of Father Surur's for her humanitarian activities on behalf of her stricken people. She converted her home into a temporary sanctuary for 125 boys and girls, both Muslim and Christian. And to them all, she is mother, father, teacher, and provider.
One of Miss Hussini's first steps was to provide schooling for those whose education was interrupted. Like all little girls, they are quickly adaptable to schooling, eager to learn, quick in languages, including English. But Arabic is their native language, and its mastery is the first requirement. Such school essentials as books, blackboards, pencils, and paper long were unobtainable until Miss Hussini appealed to Arab governments for what they could spare. The boys are not as keen on schooling. Naturally, they would much prefer to work in the garden. Already at their tender age, they've learned that green vegetables are essential if they and their sister orphans are to grow strong. Of all the thousands of refugee boys, these few are the only ones who have the facilities and desire to play like normal youngsters. All these children were found wandering in the streets and hills a few weeks after the start of hostilities. Many of the first children found died from undernourishment and exposure. It was the self-appointed task of Miss Hussini to save as many as she could, which she did by selling her possessions in order to purchase food. From emaciated toddlers, owing to her care, they became perhaps the healthiest of all the refugee children. Many of their parents were killed in the fighting, and identification of the children has only been recently established. Some have brothers and sisters in other camps, but reunion is not possible under present conditions. With the innocence of youth, they don't grasp the full import of their plight. They know nothing of the 450,000 other children under the ages of 18 who sleep on sand, under tents, or tar paper or tin. You can see that this youngster is the pet of the orphanage. There are no toys for them to play with, so after all, children are the same the world over. They have to be kept amused. This one's just sleepy. It's time for his afternoon nap. In fact, it's time for everyone to nap. They sleep two to a cot, 30 or 40 to a room, but they have a roof over their heads and are a lot more secure than if they were sleeping in tents out in the desert. While the children sleep, the older women refugees have work to do. Dresses, shirts, trousers to make, not just for the tiny group at the orphanage, but for hundreds, thousands, yes, for hundreds of thousands of others less fortunate. They keep working as long as the cloth holds out. When it's gone, they go right on patching and altering until a new supply can be made available. Many a flower bag has done yeoman service as a little dress, and it's one that was highly prized by its owner. It's a never-ending job to keep a quarter of a million children clothed and warm. By the very thought of the task of getting one dress or one suit for a quarter of a million children is a frightening one. It would be a big job to buy such a tremendous quantity, even if one had the money. But these patient people go about the task of making these things with their own meager resources. They have a feeling that someday, somehow, the world will take note of their plight and lend to that struggle some kind of helping hand to ease their back-breaking burden. However, there is some satisfaction. A job is well rewarded when a child can shed his ragged garments for something new. Inside the walls of the old city of Jerusalem, the refugees labor feverishly in their tiny shops to fill other great needs. The younger apprentices learn quickly from the older men. A shop like this, for example, can now turn out 50 pair of shoes a month. It's only a drop in the bucket in view of the many who have no foot covering whatever, but nevertheless, it's a valuable drop. 
In the Near East, metal workers have always enjoyed prestige. However, these artisans are reduced to working in second-hand tin. That's all that's available. But their contribution is tin cups from which children can drink and enjoy their meager rations of milk. Skilled woodworkers are woefully handicapped by shortages of material. There's a tremendous need for any kind of furniture. It's a case of one for all, all for one. It was down this road that thousands of homeless ones traveled in search of a place of refuge. Along a path with many familiar names. Historical names. Jericho, site of Joshua City. A sign pointing to the Dead Sea, where many refugees live hundreds of feet below sea level. On past the Mount of Temptation, some 45,000 of them stopping exhausted to remain until this day in camps near the Jordan River. Forty-five miles beyond the Jordan Valley is Amman, capital of Hashemite Jordan, whose population the refugees doubled within a few weeks. The United Nations chose Amman as the main supply center east of Jerusalem. Here, UN relief experts mapped their next move in a ceaseless effort to alleviate as much suffering as possible. Just a hundred yards from where these officials stand are the ruins of an ancient Roman amphitheater come to life. Abandoned for centuries, its musty caves are homes for scores of Palestinian Arab families who refuse to permit close-up pictures of their miserable life as 20th century cave dwellers. Their actual home life under such conditions is hardly fit for wild animals. One young man said he didn't mind having his picture taken if he could change into the clothes he once wore in better days, clothes which he has carefully saved to wear again. These women, for their dwelling, hollowed out a place in the hillside. What it lacks in luxury, it makes up in privacy. It seems like a futile gesture for a grown man to tend such an unrewarding garden plot. But anything that grows is one more morsel of food for the family. The children sense a depressing uncertainty as to their future. No one seems to have the answer to the eternal question, why do we have to stay here? Without a home, family life, toys, they have nothing to relieve their boredom except school. Education of these children is one of the most important aspects of the Arab refugee problem. The donation of just a blackboard meant a new class could be started under a tent in the open air when desert temperatures permit. The old proverb, idleness is the devil's pillow, holds good in a refugee camp more than anywhere else. They must be helped now to become useful citizens of tomorrow. It's not enough to train their minds. What will be in store for them when they grow past school age? Are they too to be doomed to a continuing life of uncertainty and lack of hope, such as is now the lot of their parents? The plight of these little girls is a challenge. Each is entitled to a seat in a classroom, to have a textbook and a share of a teacher's time and guidance. For many months there were no schools. Now there are only a few, enough to accommodate about one-tenth of them or 45,000 children. And when school is out, the same reaction occurs all over the world, hubbub and wonderful excitement. But let's not forget 
these are their homes. Sprawling settlements of makeshift tents, patched with burlap and tar paper. A grave health menace exists in every camp. Few have adequate supplies of unpolluted water, and it is not unusual for these women to walk five miles for the day's supplies. The refugees face constant danger of malaria epidemics. DDT mixtures must always be on hand, so tents and shelters can be sprayed once every two weeks. This work is supervised by sanitary engineers, but is performed by the refugees themselves. Sickness strikes swiftly in these deplorable conditions. Undernourished for many months, the children especially can offer little resistance to diseases like tuberculosis and pneumonia. Hospital facilities are available only for the more serious cases. Most of the time, the mothers must tend the sick children themselves. This is a full-time, round-the-clock job, as the small number of trained nurses available simply do not have time to respond to calls for help. With advanced cases of malnutrition like these, there is little that can be done. These tots died within a week after these pictures were made. All refugees are being vaccinated against smallpox and typhoid, which in their overcrowded state could at any time become epidemic. In all of this work, it is the policy to call upon as much refugee labor and assistance as possible. In many areas, local and refugee doctors, nurses, midwives, volunteering their services, are working with those brought in by the United Nations. But at present, there is only one doctor and three nurses to every 20,000 refugees. More doctors and more nurses would be only a partial answer. It's true the health statistics are bad, but they reflect the living conditions of these unfortunate people. If there could be some degree of security, some honest work to be done, the hope of achievement in the human soul is still a great antidote to any disease. Tots all over the world have their suspicions about doctors. But as always, the children have first consideration the older people must wait. One learns to wait in refugee camps. Patience is not only a virtue, it's an absolute necessity. Just wait. Bukra, tomorrow, will always get here. These quarters in hospital tents are at least orderly, and a measure of hygiene is available. Seldom does one hear complaints, for the Arabs endure their misfortunes in silence. Prolonged privation has taken a grim toll. These are undernourished people for whom there is little hope of recovery. Having deep religious faith, the Muslim people always resort to prayer, whether in joy or affliction. For them and their loved ones, there remains only prayer for help to ease this suffering, a prayer to Allah, to God. These are the scenes which the world has not had an opportunity to see, the precious youth of a race being wasted, drained away in the fog of uncertainty, the twilight years of age being hastened. Death is no stranger in these camps. Often deaths are concealed so that the rations of the deceased will continue to increase the food supply of the surviving members of the family, a pitiful but often too necessary subterfuge. The greatest battle is against infant mortality. Only one out of five lives longer than six months, owing to exposure and the weakened condition of the mothers. This is the sort of problem that calls for adequate and long-range planning. Complete rehabilitation of a great number of parents 
will be the only guarantee that these children will have the chance to live. That is the right of every human being. That right is being safeguarded by these shining examples of the medical profession. Both doctor and nurse are themselves refugees, devoting their entire time to the appalling demands of this crisis. Skilled in modern medical techniques and accomplishments, they often rely on today's wonder drugs. Yes, penicillin may help this baby to live a while longer, but his real need is like that of thousands, a vitamin-rich diet and a warm home. Here's a proud mother and her new baby. If he lives, another mouth to feed, another name to add to a list already containing 750,000 names. These are the citizens of tomorrow who need help urgently to live today. One hears a great deal about the high principles expounded in the Four Freedoms. Let it not be said that civilization will long permit the kinds of freedom enjoyed by the Palestine Arab refugees today. It's the old question, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. You and everyone who is made aware of a great tragedy must assume a responsibility to end it. This is a problem which cries out to the civilized world for a quick, a humanitarian, a permanent solution. These refugees, who today number not the 750,000 mentioned in the film, but fully a million, are a proper charge upon the United Nations and upon ourselves, who helped create them. Relief in itself is, of course, no solution. But without relief, there will be only one solution, starvation. And without more than mere starvation, there are likely to be ugly political consequences. Today, the United Nations keeps them living, though hardly alive. And American and European institutions do what they can, all out of inadequate funds, to bring a little more comfort and hope into their lives. Among the institutions must be especially mentioned the pontifical mission of the Catholic Church, the Church World Service, the Lutheran World Federation, the Mennonites, the Congregationalists, the YM and YWCA, the Friends Service Committee, and the American Middle East Relief. Most of these organizations are devoted to many other activities than care for refugees and all operate with inadequate funds. Through your churches, however, you can contribute to earmark funds, especially for the refugees. The American Middle East Relief Incorporated is exclusively concerned with this problem. It is planning this year to ship 7 million pounds of powdered milk, 300,000 pounds of powdered eggs, together with 40 tons of medical supplies, which are short in all the camps I visited. They also plan to send two million pounds of clothing, which is perhaps the worst need. Most of these people left their homes two years ago in the clothes they stood up in, since they all expected to return home when order was again established. Now they are in rags, and the United Nations does not furnish clothing. Financial assistance is urgently needed, especially to defray shipping and processing charges. I greatly hope you will want to give what you can, either through your churches or to American Middle East Relief, 
350 Fifth Avenue, New York City.